two-week series on Catholic historical controversies. So this week's on the Crusades. Next week is going to be on the Inquisition, um, which is always fun. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Um, so anyway, we should start with prayer. So I should stop sipping coffee. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature in your church gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments. May advance in the, well, in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So I thought it was particularly fitting that um, the first psalm for um, evening prayer, Vespers tonight in the Liturgy of the Hours, um, started off with the three lines, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my arms for battle, who prepares my hands for war. So I thought, oh, well, that's sort of the perfect um, segue into tonight's topic, which is the, that of the Crusades. There we go. All right, now, um, the Crusades are probably um, one of the most misunderstood um, events in, actually not probably, are one of the most misunderstood events in both Catholic history, but as well as just history in general. Um, so um, there's a reason why when I was thinking of sort of historical apologetics, obviously the first two things that come to mind are the Crusades and the Inquisition. So that's why um, what we're going to be doing in the next two weeks. And um, it's the Crusades are something that happened a long time ago. There were countless ones, and we'll get into that. But they're still part of the cultural imagination. Um, they're still popular. People, um, they make movies about the Crusades, such as the horrendously awful um, Kingdom of Heaven that they made around 10 years ago, which is possibly the most historically inaccurate movie um, ever made. Um, um, it's probably on par, but I haven't seen Noah, so I can't attest to it. And then, um, and actually, if you want to see a portrait of every misconception that the modern world has about the Crusades, you can watch the movie, and it's basically, it's a great caricature snapshot of, this is what the modern secular world thinks the Crusades actually were, that has no connection to reality. Um, but um, the other way that it's been, they've been popular and I mean, part of popular culture is you have, for instance, the Da Vinci Code, where the Knights Templar, which also have an equally mythological history that people have sort of adopted that has nothing to do with reality. Um, but So they've been part of pop culture, but then also um, they've been part of the political world the last 10 or so years um, in regards to um, the War on Terror, or as it's now called, officially by the, our government, the Overseas Contingency Operation, which I'm not sure which is the stupider title, because you can't really have a war against a feeling, and you can't have, and no one even knows what an Overseas Contingency Operation is. But either way, um, the, the idea of the Crusades has come up since September 11th, when afterwards President Bush he made the mistake of referring to the war on terror, as it was called at the time, as a crusade. And um, 
he was roundly criticized by all the mass media outlets as like, how dare he use a term that is so offensive and hurtful to all the Muslims. Now, the funny thing about that, um, the criticizing him for using it for being a hurtful and offensive term, is that the Muslims themselves had no problem using the word and were using it left and right. So um, Osama bin Laden, for instance, or um, Mullah Omar, who's the spiritual leader of the Taliban, they, whenever they refer to the American armies or the Western armies, they always use the term the Crusaders. Um, so if it was so offensive, I'm not sure why they were using it. But anyway, um, the, so for, and for decades, the, the, is, the Islamic um, side of the jihadists have frequently, just time and again, they always refer to the American soldiers as either the cowboys or the crusaders. Um, or crusader cowboys, maybe you should say. So anyway, um, the, so the concept of the crusades is very much alive in the Western world. And one of the, the um, interesting facts is it's, we already said, alive in the Western world, the crusades, but they're alive also in the Eastern world, the Middle East. And the funny thing is that both the East and the West have adopted the same understanding of the Crusades, um, or a similar understanding. Now, um, and we can say that they're in agreement in that their opinion that the Crusades are sort of a, a black mark on the history of the West, and in particular on the Catholic Church. And so, like I said, that whenever you're argue, you see a, arguing with a non-Catholic or a non-Christian or you see uh, someone criticizing the Catholic Church historically, they, almost immediately the first two things that they bring out are to try to use as clubs for, against the Catholic Church are the Crusades and the Inquisition, um, those awful Catholics that were um, killing those innocent Muslims and torturing all of the people in Europe. Now, um, so the Crusades are often seen as an example of sort of the evil that organized religion will do. Um, there's people, all, they sort of equate the Islamic Jihad, which they say, well, that's fanatical Islam, and that leads people into flying into buildings. The Crusades, that's just the Christian equivalent of fanatical um, religion, that either way, it's going to end up in violence, and that's why wouldn't it be better if you just had no religion. Um, so if you ask the average man on the streets of Cairo or on the streets of New York about the Crusades and what they were, they would probably give you the same answer or a pretty similar answer in that they would say that they are an insidious, cynical, I mean, this isn't word for word, but th this is the general idea of what they would say, probably a lot smaller words. Um, this is an insidious, they were an insidious, cynical, and unprovoked attack by religious zealots and greedy European colonialists against a peaceful and prosperous and sophisticated Muslim world. Um, that that's sort of the modern understanding of the Crusades. Now, how did we end up getting to this sort of upside-down view? That the first thing we're going to do is, um, real quick, is just go through how did the proper understanding of what the Crusades are, like where did the myth come from, is basically um, what I want to start off with. Now, if you started off, or if you went back to the time of the Crusades, back into the 11th, 12th century, um, that if you asked any Christian in Europe um, about the Crusades, as opposed to going and asking them now, 
they would not have been critical of the Crusades, but rather they would have believed that they were one of the highest goods in the Catholic Church, that going on crusade was one of the holiest things that you could do. So we went from thinking it was one of the holiest parts of the Catholic Church to one, the black spot in the history of the Catholic Church. Somehow that idea got turned upside down. Um, and even if you went back to that time, even the Muslims at the time at least respected the ideals of the crusade, and they at least, the crusaders, they at least understood why they were fighting. They were perfectly happy to try to kill them, but they at least understood why they were doing what they were doing. Now, um, the real starting place of the sort of the breakdown of the understanding of the crusades, of starting to think of them as something bad rather than good, um, started with the Protestant Reformation, and in particular with Martin Luther. And the reason was that Martin Luther, who had already jettisoned um, Christian doctrines of papal authority as well as indulgences, um, that for him, that the Crusades, they were nothing more than a power play um, by the Pope. And so he, that if one of the things we're going to get into with the motivation of the Crusades is the idea of going on like pilgrimage and trying to get indulgences and all these things that are very crucial to Catholic theology. That if you throw out that whole side of Catholic theology, you don't believe that doing anything here on earth can actually bring graces. Therefore, you don't believe that there's grace involved with pilgrimages. You don't believe that um, indulgences are possible. Um, you don't believe that the Pope, I mean, has any authority. And if you're like Martin Luther, you believe the Pope's the Antichrist you're obviously not going to be in line with the ideas behind the Crusades. So that's why, um, at first, Martin Luther went so far as to say that to fight against the Muslims was to fight against Christ himself. And the reason he said that was he was saying that it was God who put the Turks there in their place, that put the Muslims there to punish the evil Christians, because the Christians were not living up to their ideals. So... He's saying, like, God made those authorities to punish the West. Therefore, by fighting them, you're fighting Christ himself. Now, he, he did change his mind, however, about that fact when the Muslims actually started to get close to Germany. Um, and so, he, um, like I said, when Suleiman the Magnificent um, and his armies began to invade Austria and the southern part of Germany, um, Luther changed his mind and actually started encouraging his followers actually to um, go and fight the, um, the, the Islamic armies, though he still, was, still had the same criticisms that he had before, but he at least saw the practical necessity. Now, what happened, so that's where this idea started um, of them being bad, and it's down here, and so as sort of time went on, as Europe divided between Protestants and Catholics, the Protestants viewed the Crusades as bad, the Catholics viewed them as good. It sort of would go on confessional lines. If you're a Protestant or Catholic, they're either good or bad. And um, there's a lot of history in between then and now, which I'll just briefly go over. But there's a, living in America, which is a Protestant country, that our history books have been written through a Protestant lens. So there's a reason why um, we have our culture has sort of adopted um, those views. But on top of that, when the Enlightenment came in the 18th century, and this is where the, the really popular, when I say sort of the common view of today, really came about, 
And philosophers in Europe, such as Voltaire, start, started viewing Christianity as nothing more than a vile superstition. The idea that someone would actually go and um, fight on behalf of a religious ideal um, became absurd to them because the religious they had thrown out the idea that Christianity might actually have truth behind it. So, um, for them, the Crusades just became sort of a migration of um, by barbarians led by fanaticism, greed, and lust because they 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 couldn't they didn't believe that the Crusaders could have had Christian motivations. Um, so therefore, they had to try to make up other motivations, and what's left as well, they must have been doing it for earthly reasons of greed, um, etc. Now, since that time, the Crusades have actually kind of become popular for a little while, and then unpopular, and so actually at different times in history, they sort of regained popularity as being good things, such as in the Romantic period um, in the early 1800s, um, when people, this is the time when people in England, you had like the romantic poets that you learned about in school, like Keats and Shelley and Lord Byron. They liked the idea of going and fighting for a romantic cause. They didn't really care so much about the Christianity part, but the idea of going and fighting and dying was really romantic to them. There's a reason why Lord Byron died fighting in Greece um, against the Turks, not because he was fighting them because they were Muslim, but he was fighting for Greek independence and the romantic cause. Um, so they were popular for a while, and actually, in this sort of this positive view lasted all the way until the 20th century, until basically World War II. And it was the examples of Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin, and the idea of what people do driven by ideology, though they were driven by political ideology, um, what people, the great evils that come about, that people start thinking, well, any ideology has, therefore, it must be bad. Um, and so, who's really responsible for the completely backwards misunderstanding of the Crusades is one of the most famous historians in the 20th century, an Englishman named Stephen Runciman. And he wrote this big three, he was actually, I think he was a member of the English Parliament. He wrote a big three-volume work on the Crusades that was really well-written, great story, and he had this view, the view that we've already talked about, the Enlightenment view, this view of all ideology um, being bad. And so he was, wrote such a good story that everybody has adopted his view. Um, that, and this is his views that he presents in the book, or in his books, are what the modern culture has just accepted. And, um, and it's funny, the funny thing is, is that... Um, that historians, like since he wrote this, there's been a lot of other historians studying the Crusades, and countless times they've pointed out that everything he's, that most of everything he says is completely false, yet nobody really pays attention because of the fact most books that like a history professor writes are really boring. Um, the only people that read them are other history professors. So the history professors in the world all know that the modern understanding of the Crusades is completely wrong, but they haven't ever gotten that message across to actually the popular world and what the average person thinks. And partly is when, because of, when, of good old things like A&E and the BBC and the History Channel, that whenever they make stories about the Crusades, they want to 
They are entertainment networks. They don't want to show it necessarily how it really was. They want something that people are going to be excited on about and actually tell people what they think the Crusades were about. So they just follow Stephen Runciman's view of the Crusades. And a really good example of this is in 1995, the BBC and A&E made this huge, well-done production about the Crusades where they just went through the old same storyline about those wicked um, Europeans who they were the violent ones, they were the aggressors, the Muslims who were noble and they were not um, as violent, that they were the innocent party in, in the Crusades and how these guys went not for religious reasons, but they were just there because they wanted to get um, lands um, over in the Middle East, that they just presented all of these same um, trite arguments that had been proven wrong. And what they did actually in it is they wanted to make it sound actually academic. So they thought, okay, well, let's get some history professors in here and they can do their little 30-second sound bites. But what they found was all of the history professors were saying stuff that was completely contrary to what they were producing, so they just spliced and diced and did what you can do with the camera to make them sound like they said things they didn't say. So right now, there's sort of two really famous Catholic historians. Actually, I think only one of them is Catholic. Um, but two sort of great Crusades historians that are, have been trying to popularize the proper understanding. One is a guy at Cambridge named Jonathan Riley Smith, who has some, a couple really good short books on the history of the Crusades. And the other is the head of the history department at the University of St. Louis, um, which is a Catholic university um, named Thomas Madden. And, and so the, they're sort of the lone two people trying to right the wrong at the moment. But because most people, it's sort of almost kind of like a lost battle in the popular understanding. Um, but even that Riley Smith was in that A&E series, and he afterwards famously said, he said very vehemently afterwards that they made me appear to say things I do not believe. Um, that, cause, and so that's where we've ended up where we are. Um, Jonathan Riley Smith with a hyphen. And the other is Thomas Madden, who actually has a lot of very popular history books and like lecture series that all and they can get at the library. What even year was this work? he was um, in the 1950s. Now, actually, Thomas Madden just wrote a really good, just short history of the Crusades, and it's something like 180 pages. Um, really well, just tells he's a great storyteller. Just tells the story of all the Crusades in a really succinct and put together. Um, book. And actually, and he's who I stole most everything from. Because every time I always steal everything from somebody, and it was from him this time. So, so what were the actual crusades? Um, now, the term can refer to a bunch of different things. People always only think about the crusades being these um, wars of religion having to do with the Middle East and the Muslims. That in actual reality, there was a bunch of different types of crusades. There was crusades in Europe against heretics, particularly in southern France. There was actually crusades up in um, modern-day um, Lithuania uh, against the pagans that were up there. There was crusades over in Spain. Uh, but people always refer to, talking about the crusades, they usually mean over in the Middle East, and so that's what we're going to talk about. Now, um, so to start off, if you want to talk about the crusades, is they were in every way 
defensive wars. That's the first thing to remember. That if you, look, ever, if you want to go through the list of Catholic just war theory on the, what makes a war just, the Crusades are sort of the model example of what a just war looks like. Now, so like I said, the popular myth is that the Crusaders, or the Crusades, sorry, were wars of unprovoked aggression by the Christians against the peaceful um, Muslim world. Now, in reality, they were actually a direct response to the, the other way around, to Muslim aggression, and an attempt to defend Europe, um, to turn back, I should say, the Muslim advance, or at least um, to stop the Muslim advance. And um, that Christians at, in the 11th century, that this is when the, Muslim, the Crusades are going to start is the end of the 11th century, and it actually, it'll, first of all, it'll start in 1095, um, that they weren't paranoid, the Christians in Europe. The Muslims really were gunning for them, um, and this is something they knew, that Islam... Um, had conquered two-thirds of the entire Christian world, that you look at, um, the, in the early church, the great patriarchs of the church, the sort of the top bishops in the church, there were, um, there were, having a little brain cramp, five great patriarchs um, in the early church. You had the patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt, you had the patriarch of Jerusalem, the patriarch of Antioch, the patriarch of Constantinople, and the patriarch of Rome, known as the Pope. Those were the five top bishops in the early church. Um, at the, in the 11th century, three of those five were under Muslim control. Um, nowadays, four of the five are. Um, oh, the Pope's the only one that's not. Now, or where, their, where their see is, I should say. They're not directly. The patriarch of Constantinople is not controlled by the Muslims. That's not what I mean. Um, but anyway, um, so in Islam, I'm not going to get too much into the theology of Islam. We already had a whole other talk on that. But in Islam, in the, there, is, there is the Quran states that there are sort of, there's two realms in the world. It says that there is the abode of Islam and the abode of war. That's it. Um, that Christianity um, or Judaism or any of the other states, there's no abode of Christianity. It's the abode of Islam or the abode of war. Um, so Christians and Jews can, or, any other, or other religions can at times be tolerated in Islam, but not as their own state. They can own, the goal of Islam in the Quran, in, Islam, in Islamic history, is to create a worldwide caliphate, and you can allow Christians and Jews to live, but only in your state as basically second-class citizens. Um, and so anyway... And that's why, throughout history, Islam has been a history of one conquest after another, um, and then just with pauses of regrouping. So, Christianity, if you went back into, wait, I forgot I have a pointer, into the early church, you want, wanted to know where most of the Christians lived, that the two most populous Christian places in the world were North Africa and modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. That, those were the most populated places in the world. Europe was the backwater. It was the third world. The civilized world was the Middle East and North Africa. That was where the majority of people lived. That was the civilized world. So, 
Um, that was all the way back into the time of the Roman Empire. So, like, from around the time of Christ to the Middle Ages. There was more people in, in, in 11... I mean, at this time, in 1100, there was more people living in the Middle East and North Africa than they were in Europe. That, that those were the, civil, the most civilized and more advanced parts of the world. Um, and so, starting with Muhammad and his followers shortly after, one by one they had fallen, and so you, you go even have dates of expansion, that Islamic, by Muhammad's death, they had conquered almost all of Arabia, by, um, the, by 661, they would conquered all of the green or, or angular stripes, by 750, they had conquered all the vertical stripes, and they were pushing into Europe, so 720, they famously tried to push, they actually, they advanced almost all the way to Paris in France, and they were still trying to conquer this way. So this wasn't, like I said, this idea that the Christians were paranoid and the Muslims weren't trying to conquer them. They were constantly trying to conquer. Now, um, so by the time um, you get to where we are, which is the 11th century, the 10 hundreds, so after 1,000 part, that the Byzantine Empire which is over here, the successors of the Roman Empire, they had been holding off the, the Islamic advance in the East for a long time. Now, what happened at this time was there was a new group of very fanatical Muslims that moved in and took over called the Seljuk Turks. And the Seljuk Turks were particularly brutal. They came in, they conquered... Jerusalem, they slaughtered all the inhabitants, destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, they, did, they stopped letting Christian pilgrims come and visit. Um, they quickly conquered all of Asia Minor, so all of modern-day Turkey, and so pushing all the way up to within like 10 miles of Constantinople, um, that things were not looking good for the Byzantine Empire and their defense. Um, the Christians were having a lot of trouble getting to visit the holy sites of Jerusalem in peace without being molested by the Islamic um, forces. And so that's when the Byzantine emperor, who if you remember that this would have been an act of great sort of humility, that the great schism um, when the Eastern Orthodox broke away from the Catholic Church happened only in 1054. So this is only 40 years after that. So 40 years after the Great Schism, when they actually broke away, and actually, interestingly, they broke away and they came back and broke away multiple times throughout history, but we sort of forget about that. But and only 40 years later, the Byzantine emperor realizes he has nowhere else to turn than to the pope. So he sends messengers to the pope saying, please, can you send us help? And so this is when the pope famously, Pope Urban II, at the Council of Claremont in 1095, he called on the Christian um, knights of Europe to go and help the Byzantines and to stop the Muslim advances. Now, um, and there was a tremendous response. This is when the crowd famously started like chanting, Deus Volt, God wills it. And, um, they, and what they're going to put together is going to be far more than the Byzantine Empire thought uh, or expected when they were hoping for something like maybe like 10 to 15,000 knights, but instead get a million. 
Um, but um, anyway, that's how it started. So, which brings us to the motivation. Like, why are these individual guys going on crusade? Why are you going to leave your lands in Europe and actually go on crusade? And this is where one of the biggest myths sort of takes place in that this historical myth um, that sort of started in the Enlightenment and, and has become popular since then is that the guys that went on the crusade, someone came up with this sort of crackpot theory. They said that Europe had a problem and um, that they had started having a little bit better health and they had stopped the Vikings and so they started having more children and so you start having bigger families in these nobles. This is what the theory they came up with. And so the problem is that when the children get older, that the estate passes on to the oldest son. But what do you do with the second son? He doesn't get to inherit anything. So though what the Crusaders were, they were all those second sons that they didn't have estates in Europe, and they wanted to go conquer new estates over in the Middle East. And the thing is, it sounds good, but that's not what happened. That, um, that when you look at actually who went on the Crusades, that for the most part, it wasn't those second sons, or they sometimes will say it's sort of like those also, so you have those second sons, or they'll say the like sort of ne'er-do-wells that just want to go and like pillage and get rich quick. But the people that actually went were the firstborn sons, that they were the wealthy and the rich that were going on these Crusades. And, the, and partly... If, um, the reason is that going on crusade was tremendously expensive. It was ruinously expensive because you didn't, if you sign up, you didn't get a, like, here's some like money or a government stipend to go on your crusade. No, you have to pay for it entirely yourself. You have to pay entirely for your own armor, your own supplies, all of your soldiers. And there was countless examples of these nobles that they would sell away huge portions of their estates to be able to go on the Crusades. And sometimes it even ruined their families to be able to go on and their financial success in order to go on Crusade. So that second son theory is completely bogus and doesn't work. And that because that comes from that idea that they could have been going for religious motivation if religion's just superstition. So people have tried, like I said, tried to come up with other motivations of why they'd go. But um, if you look at why they actually went, that the reason is simple in that they were, the Europeans were very, very pious at the time. They were very devout. That there's just one of the things that was very interesting about the time, that when you look at the culture of Europe, there's sort of like a study in contrast. You had sort of these big, robust men that were sort of men of passion in everything they did. They were very violent. They lived in a very violent world and they were violent by necessity. And however, they took their Christianity very seriously. They were very conscious of their sins. And so there was the, they sort of jumped at the idea of, oh, here is something I can do where I can take these skills that I actually have, and I can actually give them to God, and I can actually go do something that is going to sort of help make up for all of my sins. And so the idea of the indulgence that the Pope and tied this actually with the indulgence that you would get for going on a pilgrimage, that the Pope promised an indulgence for knights that had gone crusade, was very, that was the key motivator. That these men, that they, they 
had treasures in, um, in Europe, but they wanted treasures that moth and rust cannot touch. And so they thought, you know what, this is sort of the culmination of my life to go and actually um, earn divine favor. Does that make sense? All right. Um, now, so, um, and an example of this, that this idea of, well, they're just going to go get rich, is that most of them, I said, did not get rich. A few did, a few got large pieces of land, but it was only a minuscule amount. Most of them either died um, or came back poorer than when they left. And in particular, when you look at the, the orders like that sprang up during the Crusades, like the Knights Templar, that were formed to protect pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, that the idea of men joining the Knights Templar as because they were greedy is absurd. When that, the interesting thing about the Knights Templar is there was only around 100 of them ever at a time um, and then they, of, of actual knights, and then they would have basically lesser assistants who weren't full knights Templar. But the average lifespan of a knight's Templar was two months, and that the entire order would basically recirculate every single year as they would all die out and be um, replenished because these rich, and you had to be wealthy to join because they were basically giving everything they had left for God. Now, um, and even the fact that the, one of the things we'll get to in a little bit is that they do when they go over established crusader kingdoms and actually some, and create sort of like these pieces of land that they take over. But when the first crusade started, that the crusaders actually promised um, and planned on giving everything that they conquered back to the Byzantine Empire. Um, that they weren't going with this motivation of, oh, we're going to go like conquer lands. That they actually promised the Byzantine Emperor, you know what, we'll conquer all this and give it to you. But the only reason they ended up not doing so is that they were betrayed by the Byzantine Emperor who started negotiating with the Muslims behind their back and they said, you know what, we're just going to keep it ourselves. Um, but that's something we'll come back to in a little bit. And if you have any questions, you can interrupt at any time. So what were the goals? The goals were pretty simple. And just looking at the time, I should speed up a little bit. That the, um, the, anyway, the goals are pretty simple. And simply the first, it'll be redundant with the word simple. Um, the first was to rescue the poor Christians in the East. That there was a bunch of Christians in the East. And it's not just in the Byzantine Empire. There was a bunch of Christians still in the Middle East that had been mistreated for a long time by the Muslims. Um, so, for instance, in, um, in the Holy Land, the native Christians there, the Muslims made them walk around with large iron crosses around their necks all the time. They couldn't have any public um, crosses on their churches. They couldn't teach the, the faith um, to their children other than in secret. Um, that there was, a, um, yeah, that there was basically, the, they knew that they had to help these Christians in the East, so their first goal is to go help them and protect them. And also to protect the, the pilgrims coming from Europe that are trying to get to the Holy Land. And then the second goal was simply to regain the holy sites in, the, in Palestine that the Muslims had taken. They figured these places were made holy by the fact that this is where Christ was, this is where Christ trod, that the, that they wanted to retake 
There's a reason it's called the Holy Land um, from the Muslims um, for the sake of Christ. And hold on, I had a quote, but I think I lost the quote. Oh, here you go. Um, so, in showing that, this idea that you were, the Crusades were a thought of great act of love, that you were doing it for the love of your fellow Christians in the East, but also for the love of Christ. And a quote from Innis, Pope Innocent III, um, one of the greatest Catholic popes, or I guess there's not non-Catholic popes, but one of the greatest popes, um, in 1215 when he's calling the Fifth Crusade, he said, Consider, most dear sons, consider carefully that if any temporal king was thrown out of his domain and perhaps captured, would he not, when he was restored to his pristine liberty and the time had come for dispensing justice, look on his vassals as unfaithful and traitors unless they had committed not only their property but also their persons to the task of freeing him. And similarly, will not Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose servant you cannot deny being, who joined your soul to your body, who redeemed you with his precious blood, condemn you for the vice of ingratitude and the crime of infidelity if you neglect to help him. So it's this idea that, you know, nowadays we think of like, oh, fighting for religion isn't that silly. But if you think about it, fighting for politics isn't that far more silly. Um, that they were fighting for like the highest good. Now, um, we'll skip a little bit. So one of the other sort of myths, too, is that the crusaders were going and were practicing forced conversions on the Muslim world. Um, this is false, that there have been a few times in how, throughout history that Christians have tried to, the baptisms at the point of a sword, forced conversions, such as Charlemagne um, back in the early 9th century um, or very briefly in Spain in the... 15th century, but the church's time and again said, no, those are invalid baptisms. That doesn't work. That Islam does um, spread at the point of the sword. Christianity, for in order to actually be a valid conversion, doesn't. So, and also the historical facts remain that the Christians never forced any of the Muslims to become Christian when they um, went to the Middle East or on the Crusades. That um, that the Muslims were viewed as the enemies that needed to be defeated, um, but um, they didn't um, force them to become Christian. And actually the fact remains too that the majority of the people that lived in the Christian kingdoms once they conquered them over in the Middle East during the Crusades, the majority of them were Muslims. And actually the Muslims that lived in the Christian kingdoms fared far better than the Muslims that lived in the Muslim lands. Um, so much so that some of them didn't want the Muslims to retake the lands from the Christians because the Christians brought with them um, a better methods of farming, um, etc., and they were flourishing economically and, and had lower taxes and better liberty than they had under the Muslim rule, so that they actually preferred it. Um, now, that actual attempts at converting the Muslims didn't actually happen until the 13th century with the Franciscans who went over and tried to convert a bunch of the Muslims. But they never tried to forcefully. They just tried to through persuasion, and it didn't work, so they gave up. 
Um, but anyway. Now the other part of the Crusades that people, when they're sort of um, thumping the Crusades or the, trying to thump the Catholics and the Crusades as being awful, is usually has to do with the um, treatment of the Jews. And this was, for instance, um, former President Bill Clinton back in, it's like five years ago or something like that, gave a speech at Georgetown University where he was trying to argue um, that the um, that the current Muslims in 9-11, that the, the Al-Qaeda, they hate us because the Crusaders' treatment of the Jews when they conquered Jerusalem, that they killed a lot of, they slaughtered the Jewish population, and he greatly exaggerated his talk, but that's the reason why they hate us, and so that's the black spot of the Crusades. Why the Muslims would care about the Christians killing the Jews, I'm not really sure, um, but, um, but, that's, but this is an important topic. And um, now, the first thing to remember with this is that the Crusades were wars. They were not, um, they were not peaceful expeditions. They were violent, brutal wars. And that there, with any war, there are mishaps, there's blunders, and there are even crimes. And so, for instance, in the First Crusade, um, when the Pope called for the First Crusade, um, that the nobles of Europe, who are not rash men, they're like, all right, this, we're going to go on crusade, but it takes planning, and they started planning and getting their forces ready, and it took them months and months to getting ready. But a bunch of peasants in Germany, um, led by um, two guys, a guy named Peter the Hermit and another named Count um, Emiko of Leiningen, that they just started saying, like, oh, we don't need to get ready. Let's just get our pitchforks and go attack. But first, we need to get money to go, and so where's the best place to get money? We'll go and kill all the Jews we can find and take all of their stuff. So they started going up and down the Rhineland, massacring Jews and taking all of their goods. That the church um, condemned them, the bishops of the area condemned them, and actually um, the, one of the bishops even hid um, the entire Jewish population in his diocese inside his um, house. Um, but... The fact remains, they did that. Now, and likewise, like 50 years later, during the Second Crusade, they did it again in the Rhineland um, and are going around and slaughtering the Jews as well. Um, but it's important to remember that there's nothing unique about the Crusades that is leading to this mistreatment of the Jews. That there, there's a sort of a sad truth that anti-Semitism is a large, has a large part in European history. That has nothing to do with the Crusades. Um, that is true in, I mean, it's, it's in every country from Russia to France to England that the Jews were, have been constantly mistreated for a thousand plus years. And actually, interestingly, if you want to look historically in Europe, the, the place where the Jews would go when they were getting massacred and, or kicked out of one country, the, the one safe place they'd always end up going is the Papal States um, because that was the one place where they would actually get treated well. Um, and also, um, so this anti-Semitism is something that just keeps coming back and rears its ugly head in Europe. And in particular, I mean, not to be anti-German, but Germany, through historically, has had more bouts of anti-Semitism. Germany and Austria, actually even Austria today, is still even struggles with anti-Semitism um, 
I mean, but it's not just, but it means it's true of most of the countries of Europe. Um, now, anyway, in modern times, we look at our wars and we call um, things like that, we call it collateral damage. That the fact remains that in America's wars, um, that with all of our good technology and everything, far more innocent people have died in our wars than, than in the Crusades. But nobody ever says that the purpose of the American wars is to go kill the innocent people. Um, no, that's an unfortunate consequence that we wish didn't happen. Um, but the fact remains, people are people, and people behave poorly. Try to speed up a little. Now, um, so to sort of give a little brief what happens through the main crusades, um, that the first crusade, by it was a bit of a long shot, um, that it was not really well organized. There was multiple leaders leading different armies. They all sort of converged at a pretty similar time at Constantinople. And so one day, basically, the, um, actually first that, that the army that was slaughtering the Jews showed up of all these peasants, and the, um, they started pillaging the Byzantine Empire and not behaving real well. So the Byzantine emperor shipped them across the Bosphorus Strait into Turkey and said, go fight the Muslims. And they were, in their very first battle, entirely destroyed um, and enslaved or killed every single one of them. Um, but when the actual army showed up, the, they were sent over as well because any smart um, emperor is not going to want um, hundreds of thousands of soldiers just camping out with nothing to do. So he quickly shipped them across after forcing them to swear an oath they'll give everything back to him. And this time, they quickly started defeating the Muslims left and right. So they reconquered Nicaea um, and gave it back to the Byzantine Empire. They reconquered almost all of Asia Minor. Um, and they came, went down. They reconquered Antioch. Um, when they showed up, the Patriarch of Antioch was in a cage hanging from the walls. They reconquered Antioch, and then finally they came down and they successfully reconquered Jerusalem. Now, um, that it, one of the things, the crimes, just like with the slaughter of the Jews that is always pointed out about the Crusades, is that the first crusade, when they finally reconquered Jerusalem, that there is very graphic accounts of them going through and slaughtering all the inhabitants of the city, um, that accounts that always get more embellished as the history has gone on, and so the number has grown bigger and bigger and bigger, or as I, when I remember learning in a class, as the professor put it, they slaughtered all the inhabitants, or so says all the survivors. Um, that, but anyway, it's important to remember that it was a terrible thing, that they didn't behave well, but there is also important to remember there is a context of where they're coming from, um, and before you judge them too harshly. So for instance... The Muslims themselves had several different times slaughtered all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That only a hundred years before, they had reconquered Jerusalem again, one Muslim group from another, and slaughtered every Christian in the city and destroyed the Holy Sepulcher and the, the, all the Christian churches. The Christians had been allowed to come back later. They had rebuilt the churches. And then only 20 years before this, a new group of Muslims swept in and so only 20 years before the First Crusade, 
and they promised safe passage to all the Christians, but instead slaughtered them all and had once again destroyed the church, the Holy Sepulchre, and captured the true cross. And so, um, and you have to remember too that they had been fighting, watch this, this, I mean, they've been at war. Majority of the army had died before they got there. They'd seen all their friends die. That you're not going to necessarily be merciful, um, a merciful conqueror after the end of a long, bloody war. Um, now, I mean, that doesn't excuse any of it, but it's important to remember as well. Um, so anyway, when they conquered, the end result was that they actually kept sort of splitting off and taking different stuff. They set up what were called like these crusader states, um, basically um, states of where the majority of the population is either Muslim or native Christian and then run by the crusaders. And they set up a, a little patchwork. You had the kingdom of Jerusalem down here, a little county of Tripoli, the principality of Antioch, um, Armenia, and then the county of it of Edessa, and they were small, they were outnumbered, um, but the fact remains, they were, the, the Muslims were very disorganized, that there's a tr truth of history that when the Muslims are united, they fight against the Christians, but most of the time, they're more busy trying to kill each other, so that's why they were very successful for a while, but it was a short-lived success um, in that very shortly after they had conquered these things, only around 40 years later, the Muslim army started to actually be united, that they were, um, and the more united Muslim armies started to turn back the tide and reconquer these places. And actually, at their height, there's something only like 10,000 um, live Europeans in the Holy Land fighting in all these places. Um, but one of the, I mean, just as a military history fact, that the, the heavily armed Europeans with all their armor, like the European knight was basically an unstoppable force on the battlefield, so much so that one knight was equivalent to something like a 1,000 foot soldiers um, in these battles. So there's a reason why 10,000 of them were able to hold off armies of hundreds of thousands. Now, quickly, the county of Edessa was conquered. Muslims retook it. And so... That, so the first crusade is when they retook the Holy Land. So what the second crusade was when they retook um, Edessa, things were looking bad. The Pope called for reinforcements. And so this time, see, the first crusade was nobles, but no kings or anything went on it. So this time, the king of France, Louis VII, and Conrad III, the Holy Roman Emperor, they were going to come to their aid. But it was a complete disaster, and their armies were entirely wiped out in Asia Minor before they could get even there to help. Um, and so, um, the Muslims continued to grow in strength, and they were eventually unified by a Kurd um, living in Egypt. Oops, that was the second crusade, and I skipped the slide. Um, a Kurd living in Egypt named Saladin, who was successful in reuniting all of the Islamic forces, and he started one by one conquering the Christian lands. 
Now, he is also another main part of this myth of the Crusades, that somehow he has been turned into like this sort of noble historical figure as like the good guy and the Christians as the bad guy. You just watch that movie, Kingdom of Heaven. He's the noble kind hero, and the Christians are the, like particularly the Templars, they're the treacherous, barbarous ones. And, um, which is kind of strange. And part of it, the reason why that is, is that when he conquered Jerusalem, which we'll get to, he doesn't slaughter all the inhabitants, and we'll talk about why in a second. But the other was that he was also, had this strange, even though he was, um, was perfectly happy slaughtering large portions of people. Um, he ha- did have sort of a strange ideas of chivalry, which were t- equally true of the Europeans and him. So there's actually lots of funny stories, such as when he was c- conquering um, one city um, where his dreaded enemy was in the city who had captured his sister, um, that there was a wedding going on while they were laying siege to the city. So the Christians, they sent um, part of the wedding cake to Saladin, and Saladin, in return, promised that when the siege was going on, he wouldn't fire on the tower where the honeymooning couple was. Um, and then likewise, like in the later battles with Richard the Lionheart, they had a very famous spars back and forth with chivalry on each side. So one battle, when Richard got sick, they delayed the battle until he was better, and Saladin sent him carts of fresh lemonade. And then likewise, in another battle, Saladin's horse got killed, and so Richard had one of his horses sent to him so that he could have a new horse. Um, but then they went around trying to kill each other after that. Um, it's kind of like those old movies when the guy's sword falls on the ground and they give it back before they try to run each other through. Um, now, so anyway, um, but the fact remains, they did reconquer Jerusalem. And the, he was, at first, actually the important part is, he destroyed the entire Christian army in a very famous battle, the... Um, battle of Hatin, and at the end, after the battle, there was they they chopped off the heads of all of the captives um, because he, he actually they have good records of this because the Quran, the famous verse about says to strike at the necks of the infidel, and so using that, all of his um, imams and him, they actually with great joy went and sliced off all the heads of all the captives. And then they went and conquered Jerusalem. They did not slaughter the whole population, but that's because the Christian who was in charge of the city told, basically sent a note when they were laying siege saying, guarantee us safe conduct or we're going to burn the city to the ground and you'll get nothing. So instead he said, fine, we won't kill you all. So instead they just enslaved them all. Now, so Jerusalem fell and... And I should say that Second Crusade, it was even like preached by the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the greatest um, saints in the Catholic Church. Um, so if you ever want to see good reasons of what the good moral side of the Crusade, um, you just have to look at his speech when he calls for the Second Crusade. It's great. So this leads to the most famous of all the Crusades, and that the Pope again called for help to retake these sites, um, retake Jerusalem. And this time, in what's called the King's Crusade or the Third Crusade, the King of England, Richard the Lionheart, who kind of humorously, outside of Parliament, they have the statue of the king who spent the least time in England of any king. Um, Richard the Lionheart of England, Philip Augustus of France, and Frederick Barbarossa of the Holy Roman Empire of Germany. 
Yes, it was Innocent III. Um, Innocent III is the, sort of the greatest medieval pope, that he, he was the last pope that whenever he, when he said jump, the kings, for the most part, said how high. Um, and so he's, yes, he, he was the pope at the time. So Frederick Barbarossa and his armies, they went over land, and sadly he died. He was um, 80 years old, but he was trying to cross a river in full armor to show how robust he was. He had a heart attack and died. Um, and so most of his army went home because they were loyal to him, not more than to the crusade. And which is sad because he had the greatest army in Europe um, and with the most experience. But so most of his army left. And interestingly, some of his army continued because out of loyalty to him, his great wish was to go on a crusade. So they actually, they pickled him in brandy in a big barrel and they took his body to Jerusalem. Um, but... Um, Philip and Richard, who hated each other, they both came over water, and they landed in the Holy Land. They quickly conquered some of the coastal cities, and then Philip said, all right, have fun. I'm out of here, and he went back to France so that he could spend the rest of his life trying to conquer all of Richard's lands in France while Richard's fighting in the Holy Land. And um, so Richard stayed and had his famous sort of duels with Saladin, and one, but Richard, time after time, got the upper hand. He was enormous. He was around six foot eight. He carried on, the, and he famously carried a battle axe on his horse and would just ride at the front of his troops and just demolish people. And, um, but he did not have a lot of supplies. He did not have a lot of reinforcements. And so he was never able to retake Jerusalem, but instead ended up signing a truce um, whereby Saladin said, all right, Christians can come to Jerusalem again, um, but the Muslims get to keep the city. And it was really hard for Richard, and he always vowed to come back, but he never got a chance. He died trying to retake his lands in France from Philip. So, which leads us to the Fourth Crusade. And this is when Innocent III said, well, we still need another crusade to accomplish these goals that have not really been accomplished. And so this time, the kings in Europe are busy fighting with each other, and they don't go. The Holy Roman Emperor says, oh, yeah, I'll go, and never does. So the Pope actually excommunicated him. Um, and that the only people that were willing to go were some French nobles in the city of Venice. So the French nobles came down. Venice had all the boats. So they said, all right, like right, we'll pay you. You take us, and we'll sort of team up together. And when they were going down, they decided to stop off at Constantinople because what had happened um, was that th this um, former emperor who had been ousted, because the Byzantines, their politics make modern politics seem not complicated. There was always webs of intrigue and murder and um, taking over and uprisings and insurrections left and right. So anyway, this guy, though, had promised, hey, if you make me emperor again, I'll give you a whole lot of money, I'll reunite the entire Eastern Church back with the Catholic Church, and help you on your crusade. So they said, all right, this sounds good. So they went and did it. They reconquered Constantinople, basically, for him, made him emperor again, started waiting around for their promises. They didn't come. And then, to make it worse, that the guy they helped got murdered, and 
there there was a whole lot they didn't ex, ex, they didn't count on the, all the intrigue they didn't understand everything that was going on and so finally they got fed up and said you know this is ridiculous we're just going to take the city ourselves and so they conquered Constantinople and made a French nobleman uh, the new emperor they made a bishop from Venice the new archbishop of Constantinople and they presented the city to Innocent III and said, hey, the Great Schism, it's done. Um, and the in Pope Innocent was a little shocked by this. He was upset about it. He condemned it, but there's nothing he could really do about it. Um, and however, the crusade part kind of got petered out because they were now busy trying to run the Byzantine Empire, which was a whole lot more work than they expected. And so they, they just started spending all their time trying to like put out the uprisings, um, etc. Now, um, the bad part about this is this is sort of what cemented the Great Schism. That before this, they had, they had, the East had actually been going into schism and coming back, actually since the very early church. That the, an interesting fact of history, that the Archbishop of Constantinople, up until 1054, has spent more time excommunicated than not um, since the since the church, the, since the first century, um, that they had been in schism and back, schism and back, over and over again. And this is what really cemented it, is that they were bitter that the, that the Western Latin Christians would dare to take over their um, great Christian city. And so this is why Pope John Paul II famously apologized um, for the conquest of Constantinople by the Venetians. And one, going back to that myth, one of the myths that people always, when Catholics who always are quick to apologize for the Crusades and think that they're bad, um, will say, well, John Paul II apologized for them, is no, he apologized for the conquering of Constantinople, and time and again people tried to get him to apologize for the Crusades, and he always refused to. Um, he never apologized for the Crusades. Um, I'm getting near the end. Um, And then there's even more, should say, um, I think it should say later, but anyway, there's more and more crusades. There's something like nine of them, but they just become less and less successful, um, and they're usually smaller. So um, the fifth crusade, they managed to take um, a city, Damietta, in Egypt, but then the Muslims retook it back. Um, King Louis IX, Saint Louis of France, famously launched multiple crusades. He tried to capture part of Egypt but then it got taken back. He try, went and tried to conquer Tunis over in North Africa, but then he got taken back and he got sick and died. So there was multiple attempts over and over, and one after one, um, they were not successful. Um, and so even so, around in the 13th century, the Christian, there was a new group of Muslims that came in, and were launched a brutal jihad against all the Christians still in the Holy Land, the Crusader Kingdoms. And so finally, the last Crusader Kingdom fell in 1291, um, and there was no Christians left. I mean, other than the native Christians. There was no European Christians left in the Holy Land. Now, an ironic, just interesting fact that I found um, kind of neat was that the, or wasted opportunity, was at the end of the 1200s, right before the Crusader Kingdoms fell, there was a new force coming over in the east called the Mongols who had conquered Iraq and were not Muslim at the time. 
and they, there was the leader of them in Iraq was actually a Buddhist with a lot of Christian friends that hated the Muslims. And he actually sent a lot of message, sent messengers to the kings of Europe and to the Pope offering to make an alliance against the Muslims and to help them reconquer all the Holy Land and they would give it, give it to the Christians. But their Christian kings were too busy fighting and they never took advantage of it until the last Crusader kingdom fell. And then, so after this, the Crusades... Did you have a hand up just now? Oh, okay. Um, the Crusades can keep continuing, but they're not um, offensive. It's now Europe on the defensive. Because as through the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th centuries, the Muslims didn't get weaker. They got stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's actually going to be Europe merely on the defensive. Um, and... And I don't have to get into too much detail about it because we got into a lot of this when we went through the history of Islam, that the Turks who took over the Islamic world and became the most powerful Islamic empire, that they pushed all the way into the middle of Europe so that, um, so that by the time you get into like the 15th century, it was very skeptical whether Europe would even survive and not become um, Muslim um, when they pushed all the way in 1480 to, um, in 1480, they actually had taken a beach hold in Italy, and Rome had to be evacuated because they thought Rome was going to fall, but the only reason it didn't was because the, the sultan at the time died. Um, there was a famous sort of poem at the time that sort of summarized this, this fear that most Christians living in Europe thought, that, you know, this is a real possibility that um, we might get conquered, which was called... Um, the Ship of Fools by Sebastian Brandt, where talking about the situation, he says how our faith was strong in the Orient, it ruled in all of Asia, in Moorish lands in Africa, but now for us these lands are gone, to it even grieve the hardest stone, for sisters of our church you find, they're of the patriarchic kind, Constantinople, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antiochia, but they've been forfeited and sacked, and soon the head will be attacked. So he's talking about that idea of the patriarchs. I mean, sorry, I skipped over the fact how in 1454 they conquered Constantinople, slaughtered huge amounts of the population. They, this, they came into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre during Mass and just started slaughtering everyone. Like, the, the bulwark in the East was done, that they, all four patriarchs had been conquered, and they knew Rome was next. Um, and so by 1529, they laid siege to Vienna in the heart of Europe in Austria, um, which actually I saw the other day that there are now more, um, in the schools of Vienna, there are now more Muslims than Christians. Um, this is an interesting side note. Um, it's because the city, it's the head of OPEC is where it is. But anyway, um, but then by 1571, you had the famous Battle of Lepanto, where they barely stopped the invasion of Italy and all the way into the 1600s, laying siege to Vienna again. And I think so the last armed invasion of Europe was in the end of the 1800s. Um, but why did the Muslims lose? And fought, or at the time, ultimately, the Christians didn't stop them through arms, but through science and economics. That you had, starting with the Renaissance, in the 
14th and 1500s that sort of is the result of the Christian ideals, which led to ideas like entrepreneurism, entrepreneur, whatever, um, and, um, and was, will ultimately lead to the scientific revolution that Europe started advancing and advancing, and the Islamic world, which has a tradition of being anti-science, and the, and, um, and the sort of not wanting to advance too far um, intellectually um, because it's a, they view it just as a distraction from true Islam, that the Islamic Ottoman Empire started falling farther and farther behind until it was known as like the sick man of Europe that sort of limped on into the 20th century until it expired and broke away into the mess of the modern Middle East. So, the last slide that, so why the Crusades are good, and that the greatest reason why they are good is because if there was not for the Crusades, we would probably not be here, we'd probably be Muslims. But, also furthermore, that nowadays, um, it's easy for us to look back and go, oh, fighting for religion, like, so silly, is the same reason people look at the religious wars in Europe between the Protestants and Catholics in the 1600s, and they go, oh, what silly thing to fight about um, with religion. But the, to the medieval mind, they would have looked at us and said, oh, like fighting in the name of politics, now that's silly. Um, at least they were fighting for things that were eternal and true, um, not for um, temporal matters. Um, and then if you want to see, well, what would have happened if it not for the Crusades, the fact is that Christianity probably would have ended up like Zoroastrianism, another one of Islam's rivals, which is basically extinct. Um, so, there we go. Now, does anyone have any questions or comments or anything good to add?